0: Alright, good evening. We're on Lesson 17, page 109 in your workbook. There's only one more lesson after this, and then we will have covered um, basically the entire small catechism. And that gives us a basic broad overview of Christian doctrine arranged in a somewhat orderly, methodical fashion. Um, And so tonight, Lesson 17, we're looking at the 9th and 10th commandments under the heading, Identifying the Source of Sin. And there at the top of your page, on page 109, in the blue box, we have the ninth and 10th Commandments together. We read these. The ninth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house, or obtain it by a show of right, but do all we can to help him keep it. And the 10th Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, workers, animals, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, that we do not force or entice away our neighbors' spouse, workers, or animals, but urge them to stay and do their duty. Alright, so when we talk about coveting, we're talk that's one of the things that we'll define tonight. Um, coveting is wanting something that belongs to somebody else. It's not just mere jealousy. Jealousy is like, oh, they just won the lottery. I wish I could win the lottery. Uh, coveting would be, oh, they just won the lottery, and and I was supposed to win that money, and I really want to have that <laughs> that money, right, for me. Um, or coveting, you know, jealousy would be like, wow, he's got, you know, that that sparkly red sports car. That's really cool. I, you know, I wish I could have one of those. Um, coveting, that's a nice sports car. I want that car. <laughs> All right, so um, tonight we are going to be starting in 2 Samuel 11, um, reading 11, well, all of chapter 11, and the account of David's fall into sin, um, David and Bathsheba. And this is, this is one of the reminders that scripture doesn't paint false saints. They don't pretend that everybody's life was perfect, but rather they, they provide a thorough overall picture of that person's entire life, including the, the good things that David did, as well as the, um, the worst moments, the worst couple of years of his life right here. So what we will see, according to the summary points on page 109, uh, first of all, that sin in David's heart led to sin in David's actions. And then secondly, this account gives kind of a sobering lesson on the snowball effects of sin. So 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, and right there we've got a rebuke, basically, from the writer of Second Samuel. All these kings are going off to war, and David is shirking his duty and his responsibility. Um, maybe through personal arrogance, <laughs> really, who knows? Maybe he was, just, he was just done with that, but he was their warrior. He was a warrior king, and he was supposed to be leading them. Anyway, picking it up in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and was walking around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark, that is the ark of the covenant, you know, representing the presence of God with his people. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told he told David everything that Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance up to the city gate. When the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord." All right, so that was chapter eleven, Second Samuel chapter 11, uh, very often used as a reading on Ash Wednesday. Um, the first, the first day of Lent, a day of serious repentance and um, and some introspection, and because it really portrays very vividly the effects of sin in our lives, and I think one thing that I don't think we really address um, in our in our questions tonight is this section, verses twenty through two through twenty five, where Job sends the messenger and and um, actually a little bit before that even. And Joab sent David, beginning back in verse 18, Joab sent a messenger with a full account of the battle. And Joab is thinking, well, David is the tactician. David has been a general. He's led armies into battle. He's, you know, a fierce warrior. And he's going to say, Joab, don't be, don't be so silly. Don't be so rash and uh, and foolish. You shouldn't be getting that close to the city walls because then they can shoot you from with arrows from there, or they can hit you with stones, drop stones down on your head. And and Joab says, well, if David gets upset because the the tactics were wrong, just say, oh, by the way, Uriah died also. That that is the reason why Joab made such a tactical error and sacrificed some of his men, um, that they died as well. (laughs) the purpose was was completed, um, that only Joab and David know about, that Joab's task was to make sure that Uriah was killed, and he was. And David's reaction, uh, verses 22 through really his reaction here in verse 25, when he says, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Um, I think that really goes to show David's David's state of mind, at least, at the moment, where he said, he's trying to cover his tracks. He's you know, to, to my reading, this this is the second time I've taught on this, on this chapter in the space of about four days. The way that I read it is David is inwardly delighted, and he's trying to, he's trying to keep calm and keep cool. But he's relieved that Uriah is dead, and so he's trying rather than calling out Joab and having the messenger highlight highlight the fact that Uriah is dead. And by saying, well, Joab, that was really dumb. And the messenger would be like, oh, by the way, Uriah is dead. Um, David is secretly secretly glad that, that Uriah has passed away. And so he says, well, Joab, you know, it's a flip of the coin. You win some, you lose some. Keep it up, man. <laughs> and it really shows, shows David's um, state of mind and state of heart, which is not in a good place. All right, King David and Bathsheba. Uh, number one, David was at home, but where should he have been the evening he first saw Bathsheba? Looking at verse one, you know David can't sleep, um, and you think of maybe in the book of Esther when there's this foreign king Xerxes who can't sleep. What does he do? He gets up and he's just reading through the laws that have been passed in the in his kingdom. <clears throat> excuse me, he's reading through the laws that have been passed in his kingdom. And what does David do? Rather than being out with his his army at the battle um, or planning the next attack, he is there at home. And even then, even then, he can't sleep. He's he's married. He's um, wrongfully taken multiple wives by this point, but he's still married. And he could, he could you know, talk with his wife, he could, um, you know, paint the palace walls, whatever the case may be, but instead he's wandering around on his rooftop and, uh, and peeping into other people's windows, as he can see from a distance. Um, so he should have been out in the field, out with his army, but he's not. He's not, because he's totally shirked his responsibility. Uh, so David wanted Bathsheba to be his wife, even though she was already married to somebody else. David coveted his neighbor's wife. Which God forbids in the tenth commandment. Um, so our key term, covet, means to have a sinful desire for something that God has not given to you, and this is you know talking about something specific that belongs to someone else, whether it's you know their their house, land, cattle, um, a spouse, um, any of those things that belong to somebody else that are not not yours or mine. And coveting is talking about the specific thing. Number two, thinking back to previous lessons, what other commandments do we see David break in this short section from scripture? Well, you might think of um, David's total disregard for the law of God. So that's, that's a form of idolatry as he puts his own, his own wishes and wills above God. Um, he gets Uriah drunk, which is not in keeping with the fifth commandment in doing all we can to protect and preserve his body, bodily life. He has Uriah killed. He um, he dismisses his own responsibility. That would be the fourth commandment, um, where he isn't out there in the field with his army. In the sixth commandment, he he um, he has lust for this woman. And then he acts on that lust. Uh, the seventh commandment, where where we talk about theft and stealing. So he really takes this wife for takes this woman for his own wife. Um, back to the fourth commandment again, where he abuses his authority as king, because because there's obviously a power differential between somebody who has a king and who has killed thousands of people. He's been the general to an army. He's a very powerful man. And, um, and Bathsheba can't say no. So there's that sense of responsibility as the king where he abuses his power for his own personal gain. There's definitely that here as well. Uh, the eighth commandment, where he's lying and giving false testimony. He's, and he, rather than being honest with Uriah, who is consistently listed as, first of all, Uriah the Hittite, that he is a convert to Judaism, that he, um, that he, you know, became part of the Israelite nation, and he underwent circumcision, maybe in order to even get married to Bathsheba. We don't know how they met or anything like that, but he is a foreigner who has come to believe in the true God. This is exactly what God wants. And here is David who has been instructed from his youth, and who has, you know, written Psalms, and David has it all wrong. (laughs) Uh, The Eighth Commandment, um, where we talk about false testimony, talk about lying, and David, David lies to Uriah's face, <laughs> um, and he, where he tries to pretend to be his friend and say, "Oh, just go home, you know, go go have a good time, enjoy your evening," and um, and Uriah, Uriah is at least in this chapter is is beyond reproach. Uh, number three, why do you think David's sins snowballed so much? That is, they just kept piling up rather than stopping well he's trying to fix old sins with new sins i mean that's the, that's the quick and easy way of putting it rather than admitting and confessing his sin he tries to fix it with his own with his own might and with his own uh, wills and ideas bad choice what should david have done that night any number of things <laughs> but this wasn't it right he should have gone inside leave her alone um she there's the note that she was she had purified herself from her uncleanness um probably because a woman on her on her cycle was ceremonially unclean and then after her cycle was completed then she would need to have this this ceremonial cleansing um you know a washing so it wasn't just a regular like woke up in the middle of the night and i needed to have a shower um, or you know a regular washing of dirt from the body but it was also had this religious aspect to it where it was the, the cleansing, the ceremonial cleansing, after the cycle had completed. So what should David have done? Well, he should have left her alone. There's any number of things that David could have done, um, including, you know, make yourself a cup of tea and then go back to bed. (laughs) You know, you have king, king stuff to take care of. Number five, what should David, this is top of page 110, the next page, what should David have done after Uriah came back? Well, you just invited you slept with this man's wife and then you invited him back to your palace. And you've got him, you know, you and he right there. And Uriah has been one of his trusted men, one of his best warriors. Um, he should have been honest and told the truth and confessed his sin. Would, would that have, that would not have been easy? No doubt. That would have been very difficult. Um, but it's a far cry better than murdering Uriah and then living in really unbelief due to his persistent sin. David fell from the faith and he lived in unbelief for at least a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, It was quite some time if you read on to chapter 12 as well. Maybe we'll add that to the homework today. Read Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is going to be our homework for tonight. Uh, So, David snowballed, David should have gone inside. David could have been honest and told the truth and confessed his sin. That's what David should have done when Uriah came back. But rather, David tries to trick Uriah into thinking that the baby is his. Where do sins start? Uh, This will be in our supplemental passages from James chapter 1, right here on your screen. Uh, James 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. All right, where does sin start? All right, especially in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own desire. It starts in the human heart. Um, sin, sin begins with our sinful nature, our sinful flesh, our own desire to do something. Sin starts in our hearts. Um, and it's something that is not external to us. This is something in, within us that, you know, our sinful flesh is something that we can't scrub out of us. Um, I like to compare it to like, like an ink stain. If you've ever carried a pen in your pocket or had a pen explode, um, that ink stain is not part of the shirt. It's not part of what makes it a shirt. But at the same time, um, you can't scrub that ink stain out of a shirt because it's so deeply imbued into the cloth. Um, The sinful flesh is the same way. It's not part of what makes us human. You know, Jesus was fully human even though he was without sin. Adam and Eve were fully human even though they started life without sin. But you and I have sinful natures or a sinful flesh that we have received from our parents and it's something that we cannot scrub out. That it is part of us until until God puts it to death when we die. So our key term, sins of the heart or secret sins, are sins that we commit in our own minds that no one else knows about except for God. Yeah, I think um, I think of a sermon that one of our professors preached for Ash Wednesday. He preached on on this section from Second Samuel chapter eleven, and um, and he he just said basically, you know, if if people could see the thoughts that pass our minds as clearly as the actions that we carry out. If people could see the thoughts that pass our minds, then the very children in the street would stone us to death for, for their depravity. <laughs> like, well, when you put it like that, that's, that's pretty stern and that's pretty realistic to the severity of sin and how, and how deeply it runs. Number seven, coveting and other sins of the heart, that is secret sins, start us on a terrible journey. According right to James 1 verses 13 to 15, where do these sins lead? Verse 15 in particular, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Wonderful, right? <laughs> well, it leads to death. That sin sin kills. Um, and that the, the paycheck for sin really is death. Number eight. This is a thoughtful question. How dangerous? are sins of the heart or how hazardous when compared to sins that people do with their hands or speak with their mouths. Well, realistically, if you think about it, well, all sins are the same to God, but sins of the heart can be hidden and can leave us unrepentant. It might be something that can be engaged in for a long time and nobody knows. Um, If if we're talking about like a sin of action, such as uh, like drunkenness, like we have in this chapter, where David gets Uriah drunk, it's, well, David's responsibility is... For that sin as well um, but drunkenness it's it's fairly apparent and it's something or um, maybe you know follow language or hurting somebody you know physically hurting somebody that's very obvious um, and everybody would look down on that and say well that's wrong and that's that's sinful and and that person needs to correct their behavior and maybe even be disciplined or punished for it um, but sins of the heart you know it might be something that goes on for a very long time and nobody else knows it and um, and it might be a sin that is purposefully even engaged in regularly or often and it could go on and on and nobody else knows about it that's a very dangerous place to be because there's no there's no call to repentance from somebody else for, for that type of a sin number nine how does the sinful nature or sinful flesh within each of us cause us to have so many sinful desires Read Romans 7, verse 18, Romans 8, verse 7, and review Lesson 7. All right, Romans, here we are. Romans 7, verse 18, I know that good does not live in me, that is, in my sinful flesh. The desire to good is present with me, but I am not able to carry it out. And Romans 8, verse 7, the mindset of the sinful flesh is hostile to God since it does not submit to God's law, and in fact, it cannot. Um, and this, this is sinful flesh is something that each of us has, and you're going to have it for the rest of your life until that day when, when your body stops. When <laughs> you physically die, your body and soul separate, and that is when the sinful flesh dies. Um, And at the end of time, when your body and soul are rejoined together in a glorified way, you will not have your sinful flesh to deal with anymore. So there will be no inward compulsion to sin. There will be no um, sinful pull towards sin. So how does the sinful nature within us cause us to have so many sinful desires? Well, we are all born with sinful natures that love to sin and don't want to do what God says. God says, go this way. Our sinful flesh says, no, I'm going that way. Doesn't matter what it is. That's the the pushback that the sinful flesh has against everything that God has said. Even something basic, you know, some basic facts of life that cannot be avoided. If God says it, the sinful flesh says no. Number 10. Give an example of a sin of the heart for each of the following commandments. The first commandment, um, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So a secret sin of the heart is valuing anything more than God. Um, putting our fear or our love or our trust in something more and higher and above what God has done. Uh, Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not use his name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive, or use it superstitiously, but call upon God's name in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So our second commandment, an example of misusing God's name in our mind Um, or, you know, mentally, (laughs) mentally, dismissing everything that God's word says, um, or correcting it in our own mind to fit what we want to do. Correcting it. I use that facetiously. Uh, the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Um, and so the third commandment would be despising God's word. Um, and even to the point of, you might be physically in church. Externally, the the externals are there. But internally, um, you 're just checked out and and want to be anywhere else but there or internally um, you you purposely have made <laughs> have made no effort to discipline yourself to listen to a sermon or to provide construction cri- constructive criticism to your pastor so that he preaches a sermon that really that really speaks to you a little bit more closely um, but rather you know you're just kind of checked out you know inwardly a secret sin might be that that despising of God's word, and that can happen whether you're physically in church or not. Um, Now, despising God's word, if you're not in church, you're not going to hear what what God says in his Bible, unless you're regularly opening your Bible. Uh, Number 10, continuing some examples. Uh, The fourth commandment, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Um, sins of the heart. I think this one's a big one, and this one might be a bigger temptation in in our society, in our country, where we've got a lot of um, constitutionally secured freedoms, um, such as freedom of speech, and and so you know a lot of what the First Amendment protects, and which the Supreme Court has verified, a lot of what the First Amendment protects is are things that even Christians will refrain from. Um, that we, you know, it doesn't matter who is in office. God says submit to them. Doesn't mean you know submission and obedience are not the exact same thing. Submission is this inward attitude towards someone or something, um, and obedience is this outward action in line with what that person or or body says. Um, and so God says this. He wants first of all this inward act, this inward attitude of submission. Um, such as Romans 13 talks about, everyone should submit themselves to the governing authorities because the authorities that exist have been established by God. God says that this inward attitude depends on the reality that God is the one who has set up and established that government and every other authority. Um, And so, in in our country, it might be very in vogue to You know, you find your favorite news station, whether, you know, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox, or any of the, any of the others, you find your favorite one. And if you just watch, and I, I always encourage not to get off too much on a tangent, but I encourage people to take like two weeks totally away from television and then come back to it. And you'll see that what passes for news is simply just commentary that's trying to get your emotions all riled up. And so much of it hinges on being disrespectful to the other side, whether it's the red side or the blue side. And, um, and that's a sin of the heart. That's a secret sin that often comes out in the words that we say, comes out and becomes a public sin. And God hasn't given us the right to be disrespectful. Um, toward those that he has placed over us. There's this attitude of submission, attitude of deference and respect. Um, we might disagree and, and you know, disagree in all due respect, but there are things that Christians will refrain from saying um, because of our respect to the, for the Lord who has put those authorities in place. Um, as you might tell from the last couple of lessons, some of these, you know, especially as we get into 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th commandments and 8th commandments, um, Actually, all these commandments really have some very pertinent applications for our everyday lives. They aren't just things for our children to memorize, but they are for us as well. Uh, The fifth commandment, talking about sins of the heart. um, Fifth commandment, you shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and protect him in every bodily need. Um, And so hating somebody or holding a grudge or... um, or knowing that you've got that somebody is in need and you've got the ability to help them, and they don't know it, but then you say to yourself, "Meh, but I got better things to do, and I will refrain from helping them. Um, I could help them, but I really won't." Sixth commandment: um, You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, that um, that we lead a pure and decent life in words and actions, and that husband and wife love and honor each other. Um, Jesus talked about lust as as adultery and when those things when those things come you know if we allow them to to linger and dwell on them well that's not good and uh, i think the way that that martin luther put it was was pretty good Um, when he says you can't stop a bird from landing in your hair but you can prevent it from making a nest there that there's a difference the sinful flesh will continue to throw ideas your way and try to get control of of your mind and your attitude and your actions try to control your mind to do sinful things and even use your own bodily emotions against you and um and lust is is a very important one especially for our children um to watch out for seventh commandment you shall not steal what does this mean we should fear and love god that we do not uh, take our neighbors money or property but do all we can to help them Protect, uh, preserve his property and means of income. So, seventh commandment really talks about coveting as well. When, at least when you talk about sins of the heart. Even though we, <laughs> and th- th- where you might see this is, I would take something, but I've never had the opportunity to take it and get away with it. So I won't. Well, just because you haven't had the opportunity, doesn't mean that all of a sudden you are free from the guilt of that desire. Uh, the eighth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not um, uh, tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, or give him a bad name, but defend him, speak well of him, and take his words and actions in the kindest possible way. Um, and eighth commandment, you know, we talked in the last lesson about gossip and slander. Slander is telling lies to hurt somebody. Gossip is telling the truth uh, to hurt somebody or telling the truth without that loving intent. Um, or telling the truth, but telling it to somebody on, on the same status as us, rather than taking it to somebody who has the authority to do something about it. Uh, sin of the heart. Um, and and I think this one is, is equally prevalent, especially, you know, Fourth Commandment and Eighth Commandment are very easy to be sins of thought as well as th- sins of word. Um where we, you know, just passing the news along, just letting you know, and, um, and, and it's e- even easy to feign and pretend um, this sincere interest, but inwardly it's just like jumping up down with glee that I've, I'm the one who has the news, and I'm, I'm the one who knows. Um, that's just something to, to watch out for, to think about, to recognize within ourselves um, that there is this inward compulsion and temptation to misuse and abuse, And so every single time, there's this opportunity. Am I going to use this properly and with a pure motive? Um, Or am I going to fall prey to temptation and use this improperly and have a motive that actually diminishes diminishes my words? Number 11, top of page 111. How do the 9th and 10th commandments serve as a mirror? The mirror is the second use of the law. How does the the ninth and tenth commandment show our sin. Well, it shows us how often we sin in our hearts, and this is new. This is new among all the civilizations of the world. Um, the God of the Bible, the only true God, is the one who who had said that you can sin within your own heart as well as sin in action outside of you. That uh, that that isn't something that is included in all the other all the other codes and legal codes in the world, but here is. Here is God showing us the truth of our hearts. Number 12, how did Jesus keep the ninth and 10th commandments in our place through his active obedience for us? Well, he never sinned in thought. He was always content and never coveted anything. And so his active obedience means that his obedience um, covers over and replaces our disobedience. So not only did he, through his passive obedience, I think that's what we have here, Actually, not only did Jesus take away our sin in his passive obedience, where he allows himself to be crucified for our sin, but he also, so he paid for our sins of coveting by dying on the cross, but he also gave us his holiness. He gave us his perfect record so that we don't just, aren't just taken from like the the negative of sin, like I am, like I am below zero, I'm negative, um, or taken back up to neutral, through his passive obedience. Well, he took it away, so now I'm back at zero. But, no, he does more. He has given us his act of obedience his his holiness, his righteousness, um, where it is credited to us, where God now sees us as actively positive, actively holy, um actively righteous, not just not just morally neutral, and it's up to us to do the, to do the rest and This is a huge point. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion. Every other religion might say or will say that there there might be a way for you to atone for or have the things that you've done. There might be a way to have that taken away, but it's up to you to do the rest, to make it good, to make it right, okay? Christianity doesn't say that. Uh, We know the truth that Jesus has taken away our sin, and he has given us his righteousness. Number 14, how do the ninth and tenth commandments serve as a guide, the third use of the law for us? Um, A guide for thankful Christian living, that we are content and try to avoid sins of the heart and thanks to God for his forgiveness. Um, so coveting, the, sin, the, the warning against coveting, um, is really also an encouragement toward contentment. That um, the, the things you have been given have been given to you by God, and the things that somebody else has been given has been allotted to them by God, and it's not for you to decide what your neighbor should have or should not have. But rather, we should both recognize that God is the giver of all. And so we want to manage these things and steward these things to his glory. Steward them wisely. Um, I like that little chart at the bottom of page 111 in green. That coveting uh, talks about sinful desires. Sinful desires usually for specific things. Um, And so the encouragement here for the Christian to, on the right hand side, to not do, to refrain from, Uh, Refrain from wanting somebody else's house or spouse or property or wealth or workers or anything that belongs to your neighbor um, to refrain from sinful words and deeds because those thoughts don't stay in our thoughts. First of all, they are detrimental to our faith, detrimental to our soul, (laughs) and then they often come out in further sinful action that results in even greater sin um, toward those around us. And so what should we do as a guide for thankful Christian living? Well, we should be content and we should be generous. We should have gratitude in our hearts to God and demonstrate concern for others. And above all, let trust in God guide the, the way that we have this attitude toward what God has given to us. Um, that the, the, the stockpile of our wealth doesn't have to be like Scrooge McDuck, who's like diving in his gold coins every other week, right? <laughs> in order to be content. You can be content because the creator of the universe gave his son to to die and rise from the dead for you. And so that means that this is the Lord who has baptized you and clothed you in his son's righteousness, who has promised to provide for you each and every day, and to whom we we pray. Give us this day our daily bread, that we pray for God to continue to provide for us each and every day. And um, our daily bread, (laughs) that we don't need too much, we just need enough for today. All right? Obviously, there's a lot more we could talk about there, and there I would encourage you again to check out the webinar on uh, the personal home finance webinar at our website um, called Heart in Focus. If you need a booklet, just let me know. There's a contact form at our website, www.resurrectionmommy.com or www.raisedwithjesus.com, and um, and that's a course that I encourage, especially for... Um, For young, you know, new couples who are getting married um, or for other couples who have been married for a while or thinking about it, um, to work through this together, to talk about it and to re-evaluate the attitude so that an improper attitude of, you know, coveting or improper trust doesn't creep in and start to pull our hearts away from our Lord. Connection questions. Top of page 112. Rather quick lesson tonight, but top of page 112, we've got the orange box. First question. Think of things that you have coveted during your life. Why is it correct to say that when we covet, we are breaking the first commandment? <sighs> There's the the heart probing question, and I don't think any person can say I've never coveted anything. I've never coveted a you know relationship. I've never coveted and wanted the success, the the reputation, the notoriety, the, the wealth, the ease, the security, the, you name it, the comfort that somebody else has. Why is it correct to say that when we covet, we are breaking the first commandment? Well, the object of our coveting becomes the most important things in our lives. It takes the place of God in our hearts and becomes the object of our worship. Because that's the bottom line. Coveting is the sinful flesh's way, our heart's way, of saying, God, you haven't been good enough to me. You haven't been fair to me, and I need more. Letter B, what misguided views of ourselves might we have if we only considered as sins what we have committed with our hands or mouths, and we ignored sins of the heart? And this comes up a number of times in the New Testament as well, where, you know, this person comes up to Jesus and says, well, how much of God's law do I have to keep? And I've kept all these since I was a little boy, right? There's that, uh, that young lawyer uh, who comes to Jesus and says that all these things I have done since I was a child. And we might think to ourselves, well, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I've done all the externals. And so therefore, I am, I'm good enough. I'm good enough for God. So what? misguided view of ourselves might we have? Well, we might start to think our sinful nature isn't too bad. Just uh, give it some guidance. Give it a little bit of, you know, slap on the hand every now and then, but it's not too much to worry about. I can handle it, right? Um, we can, that would easily, quickly lead to less appreciation for Jesus. Um, knowing that not only murder and adultery, but also hatred and must lust, must be forgiven in Jesus leads us to appreciate our savior even more. So your homework there in the black box on page 112, review pages 103 to 108 in your small catechism. Uh, review the terms covet and sins of the heart or secret sins. Read pages 17, 18, and 19 in your small catechism. And also on the screen here, read Second Samuel 11 and 12, because then in chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan, who is like you know David's personal pastor. God sends the prophet Nathan, and Nathan confronts David using this this parable or this story that he tells. And the interesting thing that child, that first child that David and Bathsheba had, that child died. Um, then they had a child again later, named Solomon, um, and Solomon would be the next king of of Israel, and um, and he's also in the line of the Savior. And so there's there's if you read in Matthew chapter one. There are three women listed in the line of the savior. They include Rahab um, and Ruth and Bathsheba. Rahab was the prostitute at Jericho who hid the spies. Um, Ruth was that woman from Moab who had um, ended up marrying Boaz. The whole book of Ruth uh, details that. It's only four chapters long, fairly quick read. And then the third woman mentioned in the line of the savior is Bathsheba. and that, that's the reminder that, first of all, that Jesus came for sinful people like David who abused his power and a position and authority for his own personal gain. But also that David for—that <laughs> Jesus came for all people um, despite the notoriety that we attach to their names. No sin is too great and no sin is too small. Um, so 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Oh, and then that was the other thing. So the first child that David and Bathsheba had um, through, from their adultery, um, which I place the blame almost entirely on David, because he's the king. Um, that child died. And the second child is Solomon. The, then they had one more child after that, that we hear about in scripture. And uh, and the child that they, the name that they gave to that child was Nathan. Nathan. And to think, um, that's kind of cool, that David named the child that he had with Bathsheba, um, he named that child Nathan after the prophet that God had used to call him back to faith, um, to recognize and demonstrate, you know, thanks be to God that He used this as Nathan, and uh, and David in a sense wants to honor the prophet Nathan through for for doing his work, even though it was probably intimidating for Nathan to walk in to you know sinful David who's sitting there probably with a spear and and he's killed people before. And Nathan had to be the one to call him to fa- back to repentance and faith. And um, and David appreciated that in hindsight, for sure. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, considerations, corrections, or improvements, um, contact me, Pastor Hagen at iCloud.com, 419-262-8280. If you've gotten this far in your course, you've got uh, one more one more lesson to go. And we'll schedule some time after you complete lesson 18. We'll schedule some time to sit together and... Um, and have a quick review, about an hour or so, where we talk about membership at our in our congregation here at Resurrection, and uh, because this this course, yes, it provides a ba- basic overview of of scripture and scripture's teachings, but it's also the course that we take our new members through for in order to have membership in our in our congregation. So I'd love to have some time sometime uh, to set aside some time to talk about um, what membership looks like and what our, where our congregation is going and how you can be involved in that. One of the easy ways to get involved with that today, um, to be encouraged by the Word of God on a daily basis, is to check out our podcast, the RWJ Daily Raised with Jesus podcast, a Biblically Lutheran podcast for Toledo and beyond. Um, and the audio for, for these lessons is hosted at the RWJ Membership podcast. And uh, you can just search for RWJ. You'll find, I think we have three podcasts associated with that RWJ podcast network. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. God bless your day.